morning, everyone. Welcome to North Park. My name is Joel, and I am also one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to be here this morning to preach, to proclaim God's word as we finish up our series in Genesis 1 through 4, which we have titled, See That It Was Good. And this morning, as we come to the end, I want to kind of begin by focusing a little bit here on a word in that title, in that title right there, that I don't think we have spent that much time talking about, but which you probably felt a little bit as we read through this passage. And that is the word, was. See that it was good. See that it used to be good. Because that's the thing, right? We live at a time where the goodness of creation is something that we feel like we have to kind of look back to. See that it was actually good. We live at a time where the goodness of creation of our world and of our lives is often hard to see, hard to feel. We live at a time where the goodness of creation is actually not hard to question. And I'm sure, like me, many of you have felt that the past few weeks. Maybe you feel it kind of constantly. You feel the darkness of our world. Because the darkness of our world is not hard to see. All you need to do is go look at the news. Go talk to a friend about what's going on in their lives. Or all you need to do is to reflect on your own life and look at your own heart. And the kind of overwhelming nature of this, that really no matter where we look, we can feel and see the darkness of our world, can often cause us to feel extremely weary to feel hopeless. And maybe that's how you walked in this morning. You threw on a smile, but you did so because that's how you feel like you're supposed to be here. But in reality, you're kind of feeling the weight of the darkness of our world. Guys, honestly, that's that's where I am this morning. That's how I woke up this morning. And not just because of things like the war in Israel and Palestine, which I think is kind of casting a shadow in many ways, But also because the last number of weeks, I feel like just time and again, as I'm talking to my friends from kind of the different areas of my life, so many of them are bringing up to me such hard and dark things that they are going through. And when that kind of comes just in wave after wave, then you notice your own struggles in your life, it takes a toll on you. And you feel that way, and just walking into a church building doesn't do it for you. It doesn't take that away. You carry that with you. But in the midst of all of this that I've kind of been going through over the last number of weeks, I feel like God keeps bringing up this one line from a song into my head. I kind of keep singing it over and over again, and it's just like this one line that is somewhat like haunting me. It's from a song called Call Your Mom, which is about pleading with someone to hold on to their life, to not give in to the darkness, even though they're so depressed and hopeless, and saying, like, I'll I'll call your mom, I'll do anything to help you get out of this. But the line that keeps on going through my mind is this, don't let this darkness fool you. Every light turned off can be turned on. And I bring it up right now, not just because that's such a beautiful line, but ultimately because that is what I want to show you this morning as we look at this text. This is actually what I think this text is showing us. 
This text is showing us in so many ways how incredibly dark sin has made our world. So dark that its goodness seems to have been entirely lost. But I think it is also saying, don't let that darkness fool you. Don't let the hopelessness get to you. Don't let it fool you because if we will look to God, if we will trust in him, he will bring light again. So don't give up hope, but trust in him. And that is what I feel like I need to hear this morning and perhaps you do as well. That's what I hope to show you as we look at Genesis chapter four and finish up our series here. So let me pray first and then we can dive, dive in. So please pray with me though. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you, Lord, that he came into the world, that the light of life came into the world. And even though, Father, we tried to put it out, he burst forth into glorious light. He burst forth into life. And I pray right now, God, in your mercy and your grace, you would use your spirit to enable me to proclaim Jesus so that we might know him, so that we might know the hope that you've given to us. Father, I want to pray also not just for here at North Park, not just in this service alone, but also throughout the building. I pray for, for youth right now and for kids' ministry, Father, that, and for Chinese ministry, Father, that we would be proclaiming Jesus, that all throughout this building we would be knowing his hope. Thank you for the people that are serving there. Lord, may you empower them through your spirit. And I pray for the churches, Lord, throughout London. May this word of truth of the gospel of what Jesus has done go forth. May we actually be a place flooded with the hope of Jesus Christ. And may that happen here. May you speak in your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we dive in here, I wanted to say right away that Genesis chapter 4, when we read through it, can cause us to ask a number of questions that I think are very good questions, but can be a little bit confusing. Such as, if Adam and Eve are the first humans and Cain is their oldest son, where did Cain's wife come from? Who are the people that Cain is worried are going to kill him? Who are the people that are part of his city that he begins building? And so on. And again, these are good questions, and these are very important questions. But I bring them up right now, one, because I want to acknowledge that they're there, but I also am just not planning on spending time trying to answer them. And that's not because there's not some really interesting ways that we can talk about them and answer those questions, but it is because, as important and good as they are, they are simply not the point of the text. Yes, they are important, but they are not the point of the text. And no matter what we say, ultimately, the answer really is, we don't know for sure. We just don't, because the text doesn't actually explain it to us. But that's okay, because Genesis clearly was not written to try to give us every single detail of what happened at the very beginning. It just wasn't. And listen, the first readers would have known that, all right? Let's not fall into the trap of thinking that we modern people are the first to read Genesis 4 and be like, what the heck? Where do these people come from? Asian people are not dumber than we are. They would have noticed that this text is not answering all the questions that it brings up, but they would have known that that is okay because it's not the point. Instead, what the point of this text is, is to give us a foundational picture of the true story of the world, of where it all began and of where it all went wrong. And in our text today, which is the final text of our series, it's not trying to give us all the different details, but rather to help us see how truly far we have fallen 
from the good creation that God gave to us. And I think this is really important because, okay, almost every single time I've ever heard people talk about the early parts of Genesis and the so-called fall narratives, when we fall into sin, we almost always stop that narrative at the end of chapter 3. Okay, so we talk about Adam and Eve eating from the fruit and God issuing the curse, and then we're like, and that's kind of it. That's the explanation of the sin, and that's the explanation of the consequences of that sin. But that is not what Genesis is actually trying to give to us. Yes, that is true, but that's not the end of the narrative. Chapter 4 is the end of the fall narrative, and we actually know that because structurally, that's how the text is written. That's how all of Genesis is broken down. Okay, so if you read through Genesis really carefully, you will see that the way that it is actually structured is around genealogies. And they're always introduced by something like, this is the generation of, or this is the account of, or something like that. The first time that happens is in 2-4. The next time that happens is in 5-1. Then it happens again in 10-1 and kind of so on. But what that means is that how this is written, how the author put this together, is to see the end of the last section, and then the section we're in, is at the end of chapter 4. That's how it is written. The fall narrative ends at the end of our text today. But okay, why this matters so much is because if we end the fall narrative in chapter 3, it can be easy to think of sin as just kind of like bad things that we do. Like God has a law that seems somewhat arbitrary to us, and we eat the fruit, and there's some consequences like life is going to be hard. But what we then don't see is that sin is not just eating some fruit. Sin is decreation. Sin is like dehumanizing. Sin is actually taking that which is good and distorting it like crazy. We actually don't see how horrifying sin is. And that what we've actually done by walking away from God is introduce chaos into our world, introduce violence into our world, introduce exploitation into our world. It's not just breaking rules. Sin is a power that has come to rule and reign over us and distort God's good creation. But that means we also don't see how radically powerful God's grace is. Because if we see how dark things really have become, and we see God's grace in the midst of that, then we can see that God's grace, even now, even in the midst of our darkness, is still there. That there is still hope to be found, but only in him. Only if we're going to be patient and wait and trust in God, who will work his salvation in his way, not our own way. Because okay, think about where we have been so far. Okay? What have we seen so far in Genesis? We have seen that God created the world good, that he ordered it, and that he beautified it because he wanted to be here with us and to dwell with us. That is the goal of all creation. It was for us to be with God in this world. But he did not create the world so good that it couldn't be improved. It could. Okay? God made the Garden of Eden put his presence there, and put humans, his image bearers there, so that we would be his representatives on earth for actually cultivating the earth and imitation of him. We essentially were to Edenize all of creation so that God's presence would be everywhere with us. So we were made to rule, to subdue the earth, and to multiply in the earth so that God's image bearers and his glorious and good presence would be everywhere. That was our first great commission. We were made then with a mission to rule over all things so that God's goodness, his life, his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
And what that then means, if you think about what is a human, we are those who are made to work, to cultivate, to be creative, to build and to shape God's world in a way where he had wanted us to. We were made with a remarkable capacity and even an amazing vocation to rule, subdue, and to multiply. But we could only do so by truly relying on God, by truly trusting in God. For we were made with remarkable gifts, but also vulnerable, and thus in need of God, and he had offered himself to us. But that is exactly what we rejected. That's exactly what we walked away from. We rejected his goodness. We rejected his care. We rejected his life. We rejected the tree of life. Instead, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means we took our own way of life and so walked into the ways of death. And that's what we looked at the last two weeks, at how we failed to rule and image God and instead gave into the serpent's work and chose sin. And Pastor Trish showed us so clearly last week the effect of this, that because we chose our own way, pain and suffering and the labor of life has entered into our world, that because we chose to walk away from God, we have walked into a world that is the opposite of him, so that now our days are filled with struggle and feelings of meaninglessness until we die, until we return to the dust. But Trish also showed us God's grace in the midst of telling us the effects of our sin, most pointedly because he promised that one day it would not be so, that one day he would send an offspring of the woman, a seed of the woman who would take us back to the tree of life. One day, the woman would give birth to a child whose heel would be crushed by the serpent, but would amidst that suffering crush the head of the serpent and thus undo sin and evil in our world. And that promise haunts our text today. It weaves its way through. In fact, it weaves its way through not just Genesis, but the whole Bible. It is the promise that kind of finds its way through the scriptures where we are constantly meant to be asking Who is the snake crusher? Who will make a way back to the tree of life? Whose heel will be crushed, but will crush sin? But it is right away in our text. In fact, if you look at the first verse of our text, okay, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Okay, what's interesting to note is that the way that Eve says this suggests that what she thinks has happened with the birth of her son Cain is that with God's help, she has brought forward that snake crusher. She has brought forward salvation. But there is a problem. There is a problem with how she has said this. And that is, that as as much as that might look like a statement of faith in God, in reality, it's not. Because she is almost trying to make God do this. She actually believes that with God's help, she has done this. She has produced this. She has brought forth salvation. She isn't then trusting in God and his timing and his promise. She's trusting in herself, in her own work, in what she has produced, which is what Cain's name really means. And when we notice that, it's not surprising that we see things go astray very quickly with Cain, who follows in that line of looking to his own strength. Because as we heard read, and as you can see up there again, Cain has a younger brother named Abel. And where both Abel and Cain bring forth offerings to the Lord, the Lord looks with favor upon Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. And I know this can be a little bit confusing as to why, 
But we need to notice the exact wording that is used when it describes their offering. And this would have been picked up very easily by the first readers. Because, okay, look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Okay, do you notice the nuance there? It's not easy for us to see because it's using sacrificial language that's used in places like Leviticus, which is just not nearly as familiar to us. But the idea of what this text is showing us is that Abel's offering is a true sacrifice for him because it's from the best of his flock. He brought forward to God what would have been most prized, fat portions from the firstborn. He actually brought forward what, what, what he would have been most tempted to rely upon for sustenance. That's what he gave up. It was something very hard to give up. But Cain had simply brought forward some of the fruits of the soil, which means he brought to God that which he was willing to spare. His was an offering that was not a true sacrifice, but Abel's. Abel's was an offering that truly would have taken faith and trust in God, to give to him, to say, you are the one that provides, and so I'll give up that which is most dear to me. He brought his best to God. And this is actually why God consistently calls on his people to bring their best to him, to sacrifice to him the firstborn. Because, and this is again important, God is graciously trying to show us that he is the one that we need, that we shouldn't rely on our work or on our earnings. Those are not the things that provide for us, but him. And so he calls on his people, give me your best, because I will take care of you, because I love you, and I'm teaching you to trust in me. But you see, the way this text is written suggests that Abel believed that, that his offering was done in faith. Well, Cain's was not. His was a religious act in which he then thought God owed him something because he had given something, but his heart was not in it. And so, God did not favor his offering which deeply angered Cain, made him extremely mad. He didn't feel bad. He didn't repent. He didn't question himself. He just got angry. He basically, again, acted as if God owed him something because he had given something to God. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like you've been living the right way, doing the right things, and you feel like God hasn't blessed you the way you think he should. You feel like you've held up your end of the bargain, so why isn't God? Guys, I've been there so many times. I have. I think that's basically how Cain is feeling here. But you see, what Cain is missing is that he wants God to bless him how he thinks he should. Cain wants God to favor his offering. But what he actually needs, what he needed all along, was God himself, was to trust in him, was to look to him. And that's what God keeps on offering to him even after Cain has done this and is angry. Because, okay, notice what happens in verse 6 now. God's response to Cain's bad offering with his heart not in it and to his anger is to talk to him. God's response is actually to go to him, which shows us that God has not abandoned Cain. No, he didn't favor his offering. He knew Cain's heart wasn't in it, but he was still with him. He still loved him. He was still caring for him. Because look what it says in verse 6. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
You see, what God is doing there is actually offering Cain again himself, pointing him back towards God. He's actually graciously warning Cain, warning him of the danger of his hard-heartedness and anger, that sin is going to take advantage of you here, Cain. And this is very reminiscent of the serpent. Okay, so if you think back to the beginning of chapter 3, which we looked at two weeks ago, you may remember that I sought to show you that in that text, when we first walk into sin, the problem is not that we just ate from the tree. The problem begins before that. Because even before that, Adam and Eve showed that they were not trusting God, that they were doubting that God was caring for them, that he really had their best interest at heart, and the serpent took advantage of that and pushed them towards eating the fruit. God is warning Cain about something similar happening here, that sin is going to take your lack of trust in me, your hard-heartedness, and your anger, and push you into something far more sinister, which is, of course, what happens. But you see, it happens because, guys, that's what sin does, and that's what sin is. Sin is not simply something that we do. It's that, but it's more. It's something that actually rules over us. It is something that dominates us, that attacks us, that desires to coerce us. Sin takes our lack of trust in God. The fact that we feel alone and calls on us then to completely curve in on ourselves with our actions. This is why the Apostle Paul talks about us as being enslaved to sin. Because we've walked away from God, and so what is left is to curve in. It's why he talks about us kind of living under the reign of death. Sin reigns in death. Because the biblical picture we, have given of, we are given of sin, starting in Genesis... It's not one where we merely commit acts of sin, but rather where the world has been so fully overturned that rather than us ruling over the world in the way that we were created to do, where we rule out of a deep-seated trust in God, we have walked away from God. And because of that, we have handed over dominion to sin and death, which now rules over us. You have to serve somebody. That's the great theologian Bob Dylan once said. You have to. And when we've walked away from God, what is left? When we walked away from the one who gave life, what do we have left? We have what Paul would call the reign of death and sin. You see, God is warning Cain about that here. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to devour you, to rule over you, but you need to rule over it. And that last part is so interesting. Because it sounds like Cain is actually being called to be the snake crusher. Like God is saying, don't let it win. Crush it, Cain. Crush sin and death. But he doesn't. It rules over him. Sin and death, the opposite of our good and gracious God, dominates and rules over Cain. And why? Because Cain won't turn towards God. Because he won't rely on him, he won't trust in him, and won't live out of that trust. And so in an act that is so clearly the opposite of our God, through whom all life has come, through whom all goodness has come, who gave himself to this world and called on us to love one another, Cain does the opposite. Cain decreates. Okay, that's the shocking nature of murder. 
Murder is not, I mean, it's bad, obviously, but murder is decreation. It's the opposite of what God does. It's the opposite of imaging him. We are actually subtracting from this where we are decreating. We are unmaking. We are destroying. That's what Cain does. And so he kills his brother, Abel. And then when God asks him in verse 9, where is your brother, Abel? Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, that's not my responsibility. I'm not supposed to take care of him. That's not my job. But in reality, yes, it was. That is what we were made to do, to rule, to subdue, to multiply, to look like God in the world by taking responsibility for the world, by caring for this earth, and by caring for those around us. But now sin has twisted it so much that the darkness seems to have conquered. And thus, rather than care for Abel, Cain killed him. Rather than multiply, Cain subtracted. He destroyed. Rather than image God, Cain has done the very opposite. And when confronted about it, he has simply said, it's not my job. You see, what this text is showing us is that that is the world we have chosen because we walked away from God. We have chosen to image something else. We have chosen to bow down to something other than God. We have left the light and we've walked right into the darkness. We have left life and walked into death. And thus, all of us now live in the realm of death where we often feel like Cain. I mean, how many of you guys, how many of us feel as if we are alone so often, as if no one is caring for us and we can't rely on others? How often feel like we need to curve in in order to protect ourselves? Because that's the reality of our world now. That's how we live. And when we ask questions like, am I my brother's keeper? Why do we ask those, those questions? That's not my job. We say those things because we feel like no one's caring for us, so why would we care for someone else? We say those things because we feel like we cannot rely on God, and so we have to fend for ourselves. And sin takes advantage of that. It takes advantage of our lack of trust in God, and it leads us to curve in on ourselves. And that's while, I pray to God, no one has actually done what Cain has done, we do it in our hearts all the time. We make things about us, and that is what life is like under the reign of sin. It is isolating And sin convinces us more and more and more that you are alone. I mean, go back to the first sin in the garden. That's what happened. Think about it. That's exactly what the serpent convinced Adam and Eve of. He convinced them that God had held back on them, that he hadn't given them enough, that they could become like God, but God didn't want that. So he convinced them, don't trust him, that God didn't want them to be more. He convinced them that they were not actually being cared for. So they took and ate. Cain has killed his brother because his brother's offering was accepted by God and his was not. And that's what did he do? He got rid of the competition. But that wasn't what it was. It wasn't a competition. It was never Cain versus Abel. Cain made it that, and sometimes we think about it that way. But it was never Cain versus Abel. It is sin against us. It is sin against God. 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I mean, this is why God was still there for Cain after his offering was rejected. And it's why, as we'll look at more in a little bit, God is still there for Cain even after his murder of Abel. But that's not how Cain saw it. He didn't recognize God's care. He did not recognize God's grace and love. And so what was left was to curve in. He saw his brother and he let sin rule over him and he killed him. Because in the world in which sin reigns, we are not our brother's keeper. We are not to take responsibility for those around us. We are to care for number one. We are to curve in. We are to pursue our own desires. And if anyone stands in the way, we get rid of them. We push them out of our lives. We ignore them. We push them away. You see, what this means then is that the reign of sin is not the complete destruction of God's original intentions for the world. Okay? But rather, it is the horrendous distortion of it. Okay? The reign of sin is not the complete destruction of what God was seeking to do in the world. It's a distortion of it. Because a complete destruction of God's original intention for creation would mean that humans would have lost our capacity that our ability to creatively work in the world, to cultivate, to rule, subdue, and multiply, that would have been eradicated. But that's not what happened. We didn't lose our capacity. In chapter four, we still see humans doing amazing things. It's just that now, who do we do them for? Ourselves. We now use all of our amazing gifts that God has given to us to serve me, to serve us, to serve ourselves. And the way our text continues with the story of Cain building a city, now his descendants highlights this even more. Because, okay, why? Why, as it says in verse 17, why did Cain start building a city? And frankly, who cares that he did that? Like, it's like, why are you even telling us this information? Why did he do this? I think it's because the author is telling us that Cain is living to protect himself. Because cities at that time, what they were, were places of refuge. That's what cities were for. They were for making you feel safe, which we know from verses 13 and 14, Cain was worried about. He thought that someone was going to kill him. And so he went and started building a city. The problem was, however, God had already graciously promised to protect Cain. That despite his murder of his brother, despite his sin and lack of faith, despite his anger and the fact that Cain never repents for his actions, God had promised that he would protect him. And yet Cain spent the rest of his days burying himself into his work, burying himself, trying to protect himself from any kind of outside threat. He spent the rest of his days trying to protect himself, even though God had offered to do it. He curved in to the end of his life. And of course, Lamech is even worse. Lamech takes not one, but two wives and so overthrows God's intention for marriage where a man would hold fast to his wife and instead collects more for himself, takes more for himself. And then after verses 19 through 22, speak of the amazing development of various instruments and tools, Lamech introduced to us the first poem. That's the first song outside the Garden of Eden. And it is one where he celebrates his murder of a boy. In fact, what's fascinating is that some scholars believe that the reason why this song comes after it speaks of Tubal-Cain making tools out of bronze and iron 
is because Lamech has now realized the potential for murder that's been expanded through his son's inventions, and he sings to glory in it. So he sings in verses 23 through 24, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man, which literally can be translated as boy, for injuring me. If Cain is avenged 70 times, then Lamech 77 times. That is the first song outside the Garden of Eden, and it is the result of the reign of sin. In fact, I think that probably nothing else shows us more clearly the distortions of God's good world, his intentions for us. Because in Lamech's song, we see humans creating and imaging God in some, some ways like we were supposed to do. But rather than doing it for the sake of others, for the sake of God, for the sake of cultivating this world in a way that is good so that we could be with God and this world would be filled with the glory of God as the water covers the sea. In the first song, like so many that we hear today, we glory in ourselves. Look at what I have done. We glory in our exploitation of others. Look at the women that I have. We glory in our murderous ways. Yeah, he injured me, but look what I did to him. I killed him, and we celebrate it. We actually mock God's justice, and we call evil good. And that is the world fashioned by the reign of sin. It is the world constantly curving on itself and celebrating it. It is a world in which we use the amazing gifts that God has given to us for ourselves. We live curved in, and sin continues to take advantage of that, and thus our world is full of darkness. And man, do we all feel this. We feel it in our relationships, in the brokenness of our families that God made for us to be together, and yet they're ripped apart all the time. We feel it in how we constantly feel like we need to compete with one another. I mean, how often do you see someone get something that you want so badly and you don't celebrate it with them because in your heart you're like, I should have had that. We feel it constantly. We are constantly making battles between us and them. We feel the darkness in our lives and how isolated and alone we feel and that no one wants to be there for us. We feel it in our addictions as we desperately look to things like alcohol or pornography or we bury ourselves in work just to get a reprieve from the responsibilities of the darkness of our world. We feel it when we look at the news. And it's not just that we see one war. Guys, we see war after war after war after war after war after war. And I lived in Chicago where it would take place on the streets and we would ignore it because we had no idea, no idea how to do anything about it. And whenever you see these things, we're constantly being forced to just choose one side entirely. We feel it when we look at history at the oppression, the exploitation, the abuse, the enslavement of so many peoples, and especially when we realize none of that has gone away today. And we feel it when we look at our own lives, at the struggles that we have in longing to be something different, longing to be a better friend, longing to be a better worker, longing to be a better son or daughter or spouse or parent, and yet we feel like we are constantly falling short. Yes, we all feel this. We feel the darkness all around, and I'm sure to so many of you, with the constant waves of it, it just feels hopeless. 
This world, our lives, all of it feels hopeless. And I get that. I know that it does. Because we've stepped outside of the care of God. And so we live in the darkness of our world. And our text is screaming that at us. This is the world we have now made. But, but, what I believe this text is also saying to us is don't let it deceive you. Do not give up hope. Don't you dare let this darkness fool you. Because every light turned off will be turned on. But not by us. Not by us looking to ourselves being strong enough and not how we think it should happen. But in God's timing and in God's way. And this is why the ending of our text in verses 25 through 26 is so important. Because it doesn't end with Lamech's song. It doesn't end with the distortion of our world. It ends with the birth of Seth, with the birth of Seth's son, Enosh, and with people beginning to call on the name of God. And not just God, the Lord, Yahweh, the promise-making and promise-keeping covenantal God. And it does this because it ends by pushing us towards the one we can trust, toward the one who will provide the snake crusher, toward the promise-maker and the promise-keeper, which is the Lord. It ends this way because it's pushing us to wait for the Lord. It is pushing us to not let the darkness fool you. It is reminding us that God's promise to overturn sin still stands. And if we will trust in him, he will do it. It just won't come in the way that we think. Because remember, God promised that he would provide the snake crusher. That that snake crusher would make a way back to the tree of life, but that they would do it amidst suffering. That yes, the head of the snake would be crushed, but the heel of the snake crusher would be crushed. And this is why the ways of chapter four are so backward, because everything about it is about us trying to trust in our own strength. Eve originally looks to herself. I have produced this. I have done this. Cain trusts in his obedience and his strength to be able to protect himself. And Lamech looks to the technology and the things that we can fashion and his own source of justice and revenge. But the result of all of that is our world, is the chaos and darkness and death of our world. But what we see at the end of our text is a God who's working in the midst of it is a God who provides another son for Eve, whom she now realizes was fully granted by God. Yet she turns back towards him and sees the grace that God has given, that there's another line coming. There's a different son that we are looking to. And so she looks back to the Lord, and many, many begin to call on the name of the Lord to look to him. And we also see Seth having a son. And what he names him is Enosh. And what that name means, which is so fascinating, what that name literally means is weakness. The line of promise that comes through Eve to Seth. Seth then names the next one weakness. Why? Because he is beginning to see that that is the way of the Lord. That that is the way of salvation. It's the way of what to us looks like weakness, that the child God will provide for us will crush the head of the serpent, will make a way back to the tree of life, 
but will do so amidst suffering. And Northbrook, that is what God has done. In his timing, in his way, he has given us the snake crusher. He has given us Jesus Christ. He has given us someone who looked at you and looked at me and said, I am their keeper. I will take responsibility for them. He gave us one who fully relied on God, who gave us one who did not give in to sin, but ruled over it and crushed its head and thus made a way back to the tree of life, but one who did it, who brought light into the world by willingly being taken by the darkness. He crushed the serpent's head because he was willing to be crushed by death. He made a way back to the tree of life because he was crucified on the tree and he did it because he is your keeper. Because he looked at this world and he said, I, I will actually take care of it. I will take responsibility for that. And because of that, the darkness cannot overcome him. The darkness cannot comprehend him. And because of that, every light that is being turned off, one day it will be turned on. Because he went into the darkness, but he broke forth into glorious light, giving us a new creation. And if we look to him, if we will trust in him, if we know him, then we are able to not let this darkness fool us to mourn the ways of our world, to mourn the pain and the darkness, but to know there's a crack in the door that's full of light. And one day, it will burst open and we will come forth into a new creation. May we look to him, brothers and sisters. May we know that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is not just our hope, but he is our living hope. Because, Lord, he has come forth through the darkness into light. That he went into the grave and he came out on the other side alive. So that we can actually proclaim with him and look forward to the day when all our voices were joined together, where we will say, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Where is the darkness? It is gone. May we cling to that. May we know our living hope. And so as we continue to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, may we know that you are with us because you have won. Lord, we may not know what you are doing right now, but we do know what you have done. And you have won. You have conquered. And because of that, we know the end of the story. We know, Lord, that one day every tear will be wiped away. Everything sad will be untrue. May we cling to that. May we cling to our living hope who has actually taken responsibility for us, who has kept us and will keep us all the way through. In Jesus' name, amen.